Jesus asked his disciples, who am I? Doesn't Jesus know who he is? No, it's obviously a question to um, find out what the disciples are thinking about him. He asked, who do the people say I am? Who do you say I am? And we've had this problem as we looked at Mark that uh, even the disciples uh, don't fully understand who Jesus is. And the people have all these vague ideas. In this passage here, in verse 28, he says, Who do the people say I am? And they say, uh, John the Baptist, you're Elijah, some prophet from the Old Testament. I mean, they can't see who Jesus is. Jesus has just healed a blind man, uh, but we're seeing actually people now spiritually blind. They can't recognise who Jesus is. And when he asked Peter, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. And we think, whoa, yoo-hoo, Peter's got it right. But no, he hasn't. Because Peter's got this different idea of the Christ. Uh, Peter has the idea of the Christ as someone who's going to come in and reestablish a nation of Israel in power like King David. Uh, Peter has man's idea of Christ, not God's idea. And then we're going to see Jesus explain that. Uh, there's this challenge we're seeing in Mark of even those closest to Jesus, the the 12 disciples and Peter who's going to take over the church, Peter the right-hand man. Uh, Peter doesn't get it, uh, doesn't fully get it. And even after Jesus' death and resurrection we saw last week, he still doesn't get the thing about unclean until God challenges him in Acts chapter 9 um, to go to Cornelius after a number of visions. And Peter goes there and realises, okay, I can eat food with Gentiles, it's all right. But then we saw in Galatians chapter 2, years later, when he's eating food with Gentiles and James, the other religious leaders come down, he feels ashamed and stops eating. So Peter's struggling to understand what it means to follow Jesus. Peter struggles, and that's great comfort for me as I struggle, as I don't fully get it. I'm sure it's great comfort for you. We we understand, we'll get Mark, that as following Jesus is a work in progress. We just got to keep doing it, keep doing it. We're going to make a little mistakes, recorrect. We just have to keep our eyes focused on Jesus and correct as we go. And we're going to see Jesus correct Peter and correct this popular misunderstanding. Because, as he says back in um, verse 21, do you still not understand? Just before this, the disciples still haven't understood. Uh, they, they, they haven't got enough loaves. They, Jesus talks about the yeast of the Pharisees. Uh, they think he's talking about bread. Jesus is talking about watch out for the teaching. They don't distort you, but they think in the purely physical sense. And they fail to remember that he's only just fed 5,000 and 4,000 with a few loaves of bread. He can multiply bread. Bread's not an issue. They're still thinking of Jesus as a man God's working through, not as God made man. And then when Peter says, you're the Christ, maybe he's moving, but we'll see he hasn't. Let's look at verse 31. Jesus now teaches about what God's Christ is and predicts his death in verse 31. He began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things. Now he uses the title Son of Man deliberately here. Peter's just talked about you're the Christ. Now he's jumped to the Son of Man. Why? Why does he keep picking up the word Christ? Because he knows Peter and all the other people have this wrong idea of the Christ, the Messiah. Same word, one's Greek, one's Hebrew. Same word. They've got this idea of a physical kingdom, a new king like David. They've got this stuck in their heads. And now he's jumping to Son of Man, which is a different title. It comes from Daniel 7. It's a, it's a, a, a heavenly being at the end of uh, things from God. It's not sort of in this world, not like King David. So he's jumping 
And hopefully they'll jump with him and see this is something different. And Jesus will use the title Son of Man of himself 81 times. No one else will, but he will use it of himself 81 times in the Gospels. And he's saying the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law. He must be killed and after three days rise again. There's two musts in there. Must. Must suffer, must be killed. These things have got to happen. They're part of the plan of God. They are required in that plan of God to happen. And the idea of um, Jesus must suffer. Uh, He's going to suffer the wrath of God for our sins. He's going to take the punishment upon himself for us. He's going to learn obedience to God as he as he endures the wrath of God, the only time in his whole existence he's ever seen the other side of God. It's not the physical pain that bothers him. He knows he's going to rise from the dead. That's not worried about that. But seeing the other side of a loving relationship with God, that dark side, he's never experienced it. Now he's going to have that poured out on him. He must obey and take the wrath of God for our sin. And we read in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Uh, he learned obedience from that and was made perfect. He must suffer and he must rise again. The resurrection is mentioned here very clearly. It's foretold even well before it happens. It's part of the plan of God. He will die, he will rise. Uh, but the disciples are so shocked by saying that Jesus will suffer and die, uh, and that's God's plan, but they fail to hear about the resurrection. Their hearts have been hardened to that. They're set in the ways of, of understanding for themselves. They've got these preconceived ideas of how it's going to work out and Peter will end up defending Jesus with a sword to try and stop his death because that's not the plan, according to the disciples. But it is the plan of God. So Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Peter doesn't understand. He's really got it wrong. He rebukes Jesus. And look what Jesus says in verse 33 in response to that. Jesus comes out in a stern way. He says to Peter, rebuke Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Wow, I reckon Peter would have taken a few steps back with that one. Get behind me, Satan. They know Satan's the bad guy. They know he's totally the opposition. To be identified with Satan is, whoa, whoa, what's going on? What have I done? Type moment. And that's the plan of Satan. He can work through anyone. And he'll try and suggest things. He'll try and derail things of God. In this case, Satan does not want Jesus to suffer and take the punishment for our sins. He doesn't want Jesus to rise again and be victorious. Satan wants to divert the plan of God any way he can. And Jesus is going to have to overcome this temptation because he doesn't want to happen either. We know in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he dies, he's pleading to God, if the plan can be changed, change the plan, but not my will, yours be done. And he's pleading in prayer so much, his sweat's pouring off his forehead like blood. It's just pouring down. It's such a, a personal in-depth prayer of anguish. It's a hard thing for him to do. And to have Peter, his right-hand man, you know, number one disciple, he's going to hand the church over to say, oh, come on, you don't need to do this. 
That's a very powerful temptation. But Jesus resists it. And then he says in verse 34, he's been talking to the disciples, the disciples with him, Peter and the disciples. In verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Now the audience is not just the disciples, but all the people who are, are wanting to follow Jesus. And what he's going to say now is going to show that's relevant to all believers, not just the 12 disciples, not just to church leaders, but all people who want to follow Jesus need to grow in faith and understanding through participation in suffering. Look at verse 34. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He must deny himself, that self-denial to any claim urged by self, that self-independent nature, sin. That part of us wants to run our life our own way, maybe recognising God sometimes, but still we're in control. And we must deny ourselves that and say no to self and yes fully to God. Yes to fully following the leadership of Jesus Christ. Because it goes on in verse 35 to say, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Someone who wants to save his life. It's a bit like a hoarder. I remember going to a house and when I was in the police in, in uh, Robertson one day, a lady had some issues and uh, mental issues, a bit of concern for her. I went to see how she's going. Uh, I went to the house. It looked all right on the outside. It looked an old house. But when I went inside, um, it was the most amazing house ever because it was stacked full of boxes and papers and you name it, whatever it was. And, and there was just a little walkway. She was only a slight lady. I had to turn side on and breathe in to get down these narrow little gaps in the... These went right to the ceiling. They were just packed. You could not physically fit any more in the house. And there was all these little walkways into the rooms and there was one down the main hall and one other rooms were filled up. One went into a room where there was a chair there and from what I could gather, that's where she must have been sleeping because the bed was all covered over. So the bedroom was wiped out. And then there was a little like this to the, to the to sink at the back and when I went to sink at the back, the water wasn't working anyway and she told me she had to go and get water from a spring and stuff but, and she'd cook and I don't know, I forget how she cooked but anyway, it was just so crazy. And this lady was a hoarder. And what a hoarder does, they just keep taking hold of things and don't want to go. And it's their security. And they just want to grab hold of life and, and keep it for themselves. And, and they just build it and build it and build it. And they won't deny themselves anything. Everything, they want everything. The opposite. The complete opposite of wanting everything. And as a hoarder, she was jealously guarding her life. And that's what we can do, jealously guard our life. We people can hoard up things and want things and deny God and actually end up denying life because she was living in a shadow of what real life was like. And that's what people who hoard their lives, people who, who hold on to their lives for themselves and don't share it with other people and, and don't open it to God, end up don't having a real life. In the end, she had almost like an animal existence. That's what people can do when they want to hold on. You can have some of the most rich and powerful people in the world, but they've got no peace. They've got, they're paranoid about it. Even though they might not be cluttered up with things, but their mind is so cluttered up. 
And there's so much pressure on them because they're hoarding things. Maybe not physically, but in their mind they are. There's no room for God. But on the other hand, the person who denies themselves hangs loosely to things, open themselves up to God. You read Ecclesiastes all about having things and not not being able to enjoy it and being toilsome. But the person who denies themselves, opens themselves up to be able to enjoy things, to hang loosely to them because God is the most important. And so whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it. We're called to not just give lip service to following Jesus, but it's actually got two goals here. It says, lose his life for me, for Jesus, and the gospel. We're called to serve Jesus Christ, and we're called to serve his message, the gospel. Because the gospel is the message by which people hear about Jesus and respond to him. And that's got to keep going out there to more and more people. But while we're doing that, we need to keep honouring Jesus in what we do. It says in verse 38, which parallels back to whoever wants to save his life and lose it. Verse 38 talks, If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. The Son of Man is a title that talks about the last days in a heavenly being. And judgment, final judgment, has been committed to the Son of Man, committed to Jesus. And the motivation for denying, denying yourself to Jesus and to, uh, uh, to sorry, the motivation uh, for denying Jesus and His Word is born out of an anxiety for one's life and wanting to keep on holding on to things. And the person who therefore is ashamed of Jesus because they want to hold on to things. And not let things go. They seek the approval of the world. This adulterous and sinful generation Jesus is already talking about. And the ultimate consequences of that is that Jesus will expose it on the final day that you've been ashamed of him. And you'll be in huge trouble with him. After Jesus' death, there's a period of persecution. Saul persecutes the church. We see the death of Stephen. Peter will die during Nero's persecution of Rome in AD 64. It'll be hard. Uh, People will will have great pressure on them to be ashamed of Jesus Christ and and, and not follow him and, and want to save their life. And what about you and I today? I know as I've been reading through Mark and preparing Mark, it keeps challenging me, constantly challenging me to think, who is Jesus? Who is he to me, to us? And I've become more and more aware of my preconceived ideas about Jesus and what should happen and and how it's all going to play out. And we've all got those. Whether we recognise them or not, we've got preconceived ideas about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to come to church here. We've got a whole stack of preconceived ideas. Are they right? Because we're seeing in the gospel with Peter and his friends, they were wrong. You know, they had a bit of about the Christ, but they were missing the main part. They had a bit about Jesus who was a, a, a prophet, a priest, a, a miracle worker, a mighty man of God, but they failed to see it was God. 
I mean, I can fall in that trap. I think we can all fall in that trap of seeing Jesus as a great person and a powerful person. But what does he mean that he's God? God that therefore he made us. Therefore he holds us together. Therefore we belong to him in every which shape possible. And he's died for us, so we doubly belong to him. And what does it mean now to live our life with Jesus as our God and, and going to heaven and looking forward to that? Following Jesus as our leader is what Mark's talking about. What does that mean for each and every one of us? How are we denying ourselves and saying yes to Jesus every day over and over again? We live in a world that around us, surrounding us, pressures us to water down the truth of the Bible, to water down our commitment to Jesus. How are we going to deal with that? I know in my own thinking, I want to continue to treasure Jesus above all things. Let Jesus be the most valuable thing in my life, the most valuable person in my life. If I've got Jesus in my thinking like that, other things should fall into place. What about you? And I have to keep reminding myself about that. Do you? I think we all do. Remember, we're seeing in Peter, we're seeing he's a work in progress. And we're a work in progress. And we're going to continue to be a work in progress until we get to be perfect. And that doesn't happen until we get to heaven. So let's keep going forward. Looking at who Jesus is to us and what it means to follow him.